Tonight's talk is about pure exploration and ripening wisdom. I'd like to talk about the relationship between pure exploration and freedom. Today is an American holiday. For those of you who don't know, it's Columbus Day. (laughs) And I think uh, most of us probably have mixed feelings about (laughs) celebrating uh, Columbus's supposed first discovery of this land. and all that that implies about our culture. Um, But in the spirit of exploration, in the spirit of maybe being able to transform our understanding of this holiday into the spirit of really valuing discovery, really valuing exploration, that's uh, why I chose this topic tonight. So think of it as a celebration of our journey here. Mindfulness is a particular kind of awareness. It's pure exploration. Through mindfulness we can awaken to whatever is happening in the present moment and understand it. With mindfulness we can explore the vast fullness of human experience. We live on this beautiful planet and in this extraordinary universe. With mindfulness, we can explore anything, or you can see that we can explore everything. Why, why should we explore? What, what is a journey of life? And it's pretty simple. We explore to understand. We explore to develop wisdom. And the understanding comes from seeing life as it really is. Freedom, which is a wonderful word, but often something that's hard to describe. Freedom is the maturing of understanding that comes through the practice of mindfulness. Most of our life, our energy goes into survival. And it's not always so quick to change that habit. Uh, But that's what we're learning here. We're learning to change our way of uh, using our energy, from using it to be on uh, the fight or flight or the survival, into taking the energy that we have and using it to look more deeply, to become free. We can learn to relate to our life instead of from this place of survival with a a don't-know mind. Sometimes I think um, we should have two signs on this building, metta and don't-know, or don't-know mind. (laughs) Uh, Another way to think of don't-know mind is as beginner's mind or is this ability to discover. You've heard us talk a lot about the willingness to be here or uh, being interested in our experience, being interested in anger or being interested in the breath or whatever is happening. 
interest is a, a, a very important aspect of mindfulness. And I just wanted to talk briefly about what happens if we can't be interested. And that happens a lot. We want to be interested. And what's important if you see that interest isn't there is just to see if you can uh, ask some questions to yourself. And by investigating and looking more closely at the experience, often interest will come if it's possible. Interest is very much related to how much energy we have. And so often if there's a lot of energy or enough energy, and if you, if you ask a certain kind of question, like if you're walking, you know, what is a leg? Free from my ideas about it. You know, or whatever, if we're sitting there, what is breath? Or who am I? Any of the kind of fundamental questions that we can ask ourselves are meant to kind of cut through our conditioned way of experiencing life and to make it fresh, to see it clearly as it is. And so try doing that without, without forcing it, but just see if you can. You might look more closely microscopically, or if you're doing that and it's not working, you might open up your attention or change what you're noticing. Uh, but you can't force it. If, if you can't do it, it's okay. Uh, and if there's no interest, it's possible to be here in the moment very lightly. And by being here very lightly, we rest the mind. And often a lot of what we're doing in meditation practice is resting, uh, which builds up the energy again so that the interest will be there again. It's natural when the energy is a certain um, pitch, if it's, it has a certain uh, height of energy, it's natural for interest to be there. You don't have to make it happen. Interest will come and go, just like the sounds or the breath. One of the ways I would suggest being here lightly is to develop the concentration rather than the mindfulness, which means that if your anchor is the breath, you just try to synchronize the attention with the movement of the breath without really trying to know what it is that's moving. You just lightly are with it. You're not trying to get to the bottom of the universe within that moment uh, and be uh, totally free in that moment. You're just trying to connect, flow with life. Uh, if you're walking, you're just very lightly with the movement of the legs. It's incredibly simple, or with sound. You're not trying to deeply understand the sound. You're just trying to synchronize the attention with it very lightly. Uh, so it's a kind of light listening. And even if you need to have a relationship of waiting for the energy to come back, uh, many years of my practice, before I had Upandita as my teacher, I would just sit down and wait. In some ways, that's what I did every sitting and walking. I just kind of wait for the energy to come. And if it wasn't there, I'd kind of space out. 
but it worked, you know. It's not that I'm recommending doing that totally, but I saw that the energy would finally come together for me, and, it, and I could see clearly again, and it wasn't anything that I did. It just would come and go, and come and go. And I have great faith that you don't have to do anything, because I saw that. You know, and it's um, yes, we can make certain interventions, and that can help the uh, process. But ultimately, it's really out of our control. And if you can be okay with that uh, sense of just kind of uh, waiting, if we react to the interest not being there, that makes us tireder. The more we try to make interest happen, the more we get upset that interest isn't happening, uh, we get tireder and tireder, and then there's less likely to be any interest because uh, there's no energy. So very light concentration rests the mind, and that's the purpose of it. It's, it strengthens us, it rests us, it uh, builds up strength so that we can open to what's happening uh, when the mindfulness can come back. I used to have a note when I was walking, lifting, moving, spacing. <laughs> lifting, moving, spacing. And see, for me, that was just a way to be okay with that. That's what I was doing. <laughs> That's what I was doing. <laughs> You know, if you try to have some humor with it. It's fun, you know. I mean, if you even managed that, it would be a miracle. You know, if you did lifting, moving, spacing, and you only spaced out for spacing, you know. <laughs> and that happened for a walking period, that would be great practice. So, you know, you can even note spacing sometimes. It's, it's great. That's what's happening. Acceptance. In some ways, those years, I practiced nine years this way, so I got really good at it. <laughs> I, I never worry if the practice is going to come together after it falls apart, because it does. One of the reasons I'm emphasizing that light concentration, because it brings about a kind of stillness and rest, is because you need a certain amount of that to be mindful. In Vipassana practice, you're just getting just enough concentration to then um, understand what's happening. So we use this light concentration uh, to, to take that attention and to pay attention to our moment-to-moment -moment experience. And usually what we notice, and it's, it's like the basis of the Buddha's teaching, is the profundity of change. The reason that it's so difficult to be mindful is because it's, life is moving so quickly. It's moving so fast. It's, it's just staggering. It's really hard for us to accept it. It's very hard for us to get it. And it, it's like we might get it on one level, and then another level of it will open, and another level of it will open. It's like it's just there's no end to our understanding of the depth of change or the profundity of change in life. It's, it's 
extraordinary. And so with this very light concentration that helps us just kind of lightly synchronize with the movement of things, that's the whole basis for the Vipassana practice. If you can't very lightly go with the movement, then you're never going to be able to see it clearly. Mindfulness, it's like just like jumping into a river. If you think of life, our moment-to-moment experience as a river, in mindfulness it's like you're jumping into the river and then flowing in it and trying to see it clearly from the inside. That's hard. Sometimes you'll feel like you're, you're looking at it from the outside. Sometimes you're always, you know, kind of behind. You're not quite there. Uh, It's okay, however it's happening. But that's, if you sense that you can do it for a few seconds, and then you lose it, and then maybe later on you can do it for a few seconds, and then you lose it, that's about right. It's not easy to maintain it. Uh, But if you can be okay with moving in and out of that flow, you can build on it. It's basically taking what you get, you know. It's like accepting what you get. If you can flow it with it for a while and then accept that you slip out and you flow in with it and then you slip out. If you don't react to that, it'll just keep deepening. If you fight it, you'll get tired and it'll happen less and less. So say we're several moments with a sound, like the sound of the plane right now. The energy's there, the concentration's there, the mindfulness is there. Uh, and you're there for a few seconds, and then you react with aversion or attachment. It's like there'll be the flowing with life as it is, and then the reaction stops the flow. Uh, When we react with aversion or attachment, we're fighting how life is, and there's no peace. There's no freedom. The freedom is in being able to go with how it is. But as you see, you know, we react a lot. And what's great about mindfulness is that you can yield into the reaction, and that's part of the flow. So if you can let the reaction at that point be what's happening, oh, it's just aversion, you slip right into it again. You slip right back into life as it is. You get into the aversion again. Be careful of trying to get back to what caused the aversion in the first place, because if you're in aversion, it's not possible at that point to go back, because that's not what's happening. Or if attachment's happening. it's, it, you just sink right into it, where it is, where you are. Try not to react to the reaction. <laughs> Often where we find ourselves is reacting to the reaction, to the reaction, to the reaction. It happens so quickly uh, that wherever you find yourself in the reaction, what's great about Vipassana is great. You slip in again. You can, you can go five hours into reaction and finally you'll get it. It's like, oh yeah, aversion. (laughs) I mean, sometimes that's a bad day. (laughs) It's a bad hair day. (laughs) Sometimes it's five hours that 
five days. It can be subtle, a reaction. <laughs> when you feel that you're, you can't be here, that's what's going on. There's a reaction going on. And even if it's slightly, you might be off for like some hours. You don't feel like you quite have come together. There's some reaction going on. And it's okay. It'll, it'll become clear at some point. At some point. <laughs> when I was on staff here, um, I was lucky that year because a lot of great teachers came from Asia. And one of them was um, Ajahn Chah. I was a cook for him, and I would bring him lunch in the yoga room. He used to have lunch in the yoga room. And I would bring him his food and bow and drop the food off. And then he would, as I was trying to get out of there as quickly as I could, because I knew he would ask me a question, uh, I would just be trying to get out the door so he wouldn't ask me a question. He'd go, and he, you know, asked me a question, and I, I took it really seriously. Oh, I just, I try, you know, what he, one of his favorite ones was, what is the difference between happiness and peace? He asked me that thousands of times. It seemed, what's the difference between happiness and peace? And I kind of, okay, sit right down. And I'd try to have the right answer. And I'd think about it, and I'd answer, you know, what happiness was, and he'd just tease me mercilessly. You know, I just, I wish I had never brought him lunch. You know, I just, and then <laughs> I'd leave, and I'd feel so bad that I didn't get the right answer. And then I'd have to bring him lunch the next day, and he'd ask me another question, and I'd really take it seriously. I'd give him the, the deepest, most uh, thought-out answer I could, and he'd just tease me mercilessly. And I'd leave, and after some time, I finally figured out that he was not the least interested in the right answer. You know, it was just a process. It was fun, you know, to him, you know. <laughs> slowly I started to learn to play with it and not to feel like I needed to have an answer. And slowly there was a dialogue, you know, instead of feeling like I could answer and get out of there, we'd play with it. And then it was just questioning. You know, what is, what is peace? What is happiness? If you think you know... You've lost it. You've lost the ability to explore. And that's so much of what the practice is about. Um, if you think you know what the breath is, if you think you know what anger is, if you think you know what Vipassana is, all of it, it's just that ability to just be insecure, to not know. To be able to be that vulnerable is the beginning of wisdom. To just stay here in the moment and just be that insecure, not to know. Ajahn Chah and Mahasi Sayadaw and Upandita, all three of them were like that. They just kind of either teased me into humility or would kind of um, blast me <laughs> into that humility. And so many times I would think that I was there, but I, it was just an act. You know, I would act like I didn't know, but deep down I knew. You know, and it was just, it's so hard. It's hard to um, be shown by somebody 
that you're not as humble as you think you are. And that's what they did. It was excruciating sometimes. Uh, because it's, it's, it's a death. Over and over again, it's a death. It's a death. It's a death. It's a death of the known. It's a death of the known. It's a death of the known. And the only time there's the birth of wisdom is if we're, we allow that death to happen. True humility is this ability to explore purely. And I think that we often think of humility as something where we have a kind of low self-esteem, a low self-image. Or If humility is based on hating ourselves, it's not humility. Humility is just simply that uh, ability to treat each moment new. It's the willingness to be vulnerable. If we think we know something, we're dead. And if we are willing to be vulnerable, then we're alive. If we think we know something, that's not mindfulness. In August this year, I taught a retreat in Maui, in Hawaii, and then in uh, Washington State. And in both places, I was allergic to the room I was in, and I had to sleep outside. When we sleep outside, it kind of opens us to a whole other world that we might not be ready for. <laughs> so I was uh, the first night that I was in Maui, I was tired and I really wanted to sleep. And it was a, a ranch. So I was lying there and uh, it, I was on a porch and this cow, this huge cow, stuck its head right in my face, you know, just and went, <laughs> and I got there for that. It was like, okay, you know, and I, uh, it did it again. And then the baby calf tried to get up on the porch. And, and so I took a tea bag. I went in the house. This was great. I was so uh, tired and I, did, I took a, sleep ba- a tea bag and I threw it at the cow. And the cow just looked at me. You know. <laughs> and, Finally, the cow went away, you know, and I was lying there thinking, you know, why doesn't the cow go to bed? It's, <laughs> it's bedtime. <laughs> you know? And uh, during this month that I was sleeping outside, it's like none of the animals are asleep. We're the only people that go to sleep. The cow would sleep during the day. You know, she would, I'd look at her, I'd be so tired, and I'd wake up and I'd think, you know, you can sleep. <laughs> I, I can't sleep. Uh, but there was this, the cow finally went to the other side of the pasture, and I fell asleep, and I was uh, happily sleeping. You know, most people who know me know I really like sleeping. The Buddha said that sleep is the world's greatest pleasure. <clears throat> You'll, if you haven't figured that one out yet, you will by the end of the retreat. <laughs> <laughs> Around 4 a.m. that morning, a rooster started crowing. And my first thought was, and I didn't control it, it was as I heard the sound. Of course, there was an unpleasant feeling with the sensation of the sound of crowing. And my first thought was, we really don't need chickens in this world, do we? <laughs> you know, that's inc- it was so self-centered, but you know, and that's what we do. And there was that 
that moment of hearing, it was unpleasant, I wasn't mindful of it, and murder. <laughs> murder was really in my mind. Uh, believing that thought, you know, we don't really need chickens in this world, do we? That's papancha. That's proliferation. Uh, and the rooster then crowed again. And I had this vision of Mary Martin, you know, and Peter Pan. I don't know if you grew up in the United States in my generation, you'll know. So, uh, there's a <clears throat> there was a show called Peter Pan. It's a book, most of you probably know the story, but uh, this woman would fly through the air crowing. Uh, and so I started proliferating again. I was lying there. This was, you know, just a few moments later, thinking about that I was Tiger Lily once in the play Peter Pan. On and on and on, and then, oh yeah, hearing. How many times do we do that? It's just proliferation. Uh, but then I went back to the sound, and after some minutes I was able to be okay with the existence <laughs> of the rooster. Now that's freedom. You know, the, the sound uh, wasn't the problem. It was my not wanting it to be there that was the problem. My not wanting it to be there that was the ability that prevented me from being there vulnerable, just letting it be, being free. You don't try to stop proliferation. You don't try to thoughts, it's try to stop thoughts from arising. They'll arise. Uh, and when we get really quiet, it's just amazing to see how we create the world. And over time you start to be able to distinguish between freedom, freedom isn't trying to get rid of thinking. Freedom isn't trying to get rid of anything. Thinking is a very human thing. You know, this is what we do. The, the eyes see, the ears hear, the mind thinks. We're not trying to stop that. We're just trying to be able to see it clearly. And as you can see with sound, you know, it's hard enough to be clear with it and to see the difference between the direct experience of being with the sound and getting lost in the conceptual concept of what's causing the sound. That's a place that's quite easy to explore when it comes to seeing the difference between thoughts coming and going and getting lost in the content or believing the content of the thinking, that's harder. And it's a, it takes a, a lot of quiet and stillness to be able to explore on the level that we're talking about. However it's happening, if you're noticing a thought and it doesn't proliferate into the, the story of Peter Pan and Mary Martin flying through the air. If you just with it and you see it clearly, it comes and goes. Or if you get lost for 10 minutes in proliferating, you can be interested in how it's happening. How do we create the world? What we're trying to do is to break through that thickly encrusted prison of believing our thinking. And of, of underneath that, it's, it's thinking that we know. It's thinking that we know what a rooster is. It's thinking that we know what a Michelle is. It's thinking that you know what this Buddhist statue looks like that kills it. 
whenever we can cut through that conditioned conceptual world of uh, believing in our memory, then life isn't very meaningful. Uh, And whenever we're able to have enough energy uh, to cut through and to to experience directly what's happening, life is very meaningful. It's not boring. We're on the journey. Exploration allows us to move from the conceptual realm to the experiential level of experience, and then that opens the ability to understand. It opens up our own inner wisdom. It's not that you have to make that wisdom happen. It's there. It's just uncovering the dust. A few days ago, I went for a walk in a new place. Uh, I often just kind of walk the same old paths. Um, But once in a while, I get enough energy to be willing to explore a new path or a new trail. And I went to this place that had a stream, and I was really in that mood of just exploring, and I was walking down the stream, getting my feet wet. Um, And there was a flower in in the middle of the stream growing uh, on this rock with a little soil in it that I haven't seen for years. It was, it's called a red cardinal flower, and it's an endangered flower. It's an endangered wildflower. And when I first saw it, having lived in um, home is Hawaii now, although I grew up here, I looked at it and it was so small. And my first thought was, wow, you know, it's just a small little flower, Unichelle, you know, what's the big deal? But there was another part of me that was so excited uh, that, that was strong enough to take over that, you know, so what, it's just this little flower. And I sat with it for a really long time, just being with it. it is, it's a beautiful scarlet, but very tiny flower. And over, over that time, I just was with its presence. There's a, there's a presence there that was so powerful and it keeps coming back to me and keep coming, it keeps coming back to me. It's like it really, we, we became interconnected. And it reminded me of a, a poem that I read recently um, called Presence. It's from a book called A, a Hummingbird's Dance. Presence. After a long wait, what bloomed was not the flower called iris, but a profound presence in dark purple splendor. We have to wait a long time for that, that opening to happen. After a long wait, what bloomed was not the flower iris. You know, that's just a word. Uh, but can we take the time to wait with whatever it is, whether it's a breath? How many times have we breathed in our life? I mean, there's nothing more ordinary than a breath. Or there's nothing more ordinary than a grass blade. Uh, it's, it's amazing. But 
just think of the amazing thing that you're doing here where you're trying to learn how to really open to it in this way that there's a presence with it and it's an ultimately a mystery and ultimately you can't put any words on it but it brings wisdom it brings understanding to be able to wait and finally be with it for the first time to directly experience it that's the goal that's it. That you're really there with it, and its and its uh, power is there with you. Sometimes, what is happening is so unpleasant that it's difficult to explore. You know, we want so much to feel connected with life and it, it's somewhat again relatively easy to do it with a pleasant sound or with a pleasant body sensation uh, we don't want to feel separate we don't want to feel alienated uh, and we want to flow into the universe we love to do this with pleasant sensations food is a great place to watch that you know really delicious um, lunch you know a really delicious salad dressing or really delicious uh, banana or whatever it is. It's easy to kind of flow into those sensations. But it's very difficult to open to something that hurts. And ultimately I see freedom as a purification of our motivation. Because we have to ask ourselves many times, and we do on a retreat, you know, why am I doing this? You know, what, what, why am I putting myself through this? Uh, what is that long wait all about? Uh, and it, it's really to be able to value touching the truth. Really being able to value that we're cutting through the conditioning to, to see life as we want it to be or how we don't want it to be rather than just as it is over and over, learning to treat each experience equally. Uh, that's, that's freedom, and it's hard to value, to equally value an unpleasant experience and a pleasant experience, to equally value a neutral experience and an unpleasant and pleasant. That cuts through our ego. It's not easy. Um, but it's valuable because it's about how it is. It's the truth of things. It's important to really explore pleasant feelings. You know, when we shut down to life, we often shut down to the pleasant as well as the unpleasant. And as you can see, each day that you're here, you probably become a little more alive. And you can't believe how much of life you've missed. It's, it's, that's the tragedy is how much we miss. Uh, so don't just think that you're here to explore unpleasant. It's really important to explore pleasant. Sometimes when we explore pleasant feelings, it makes space for the unpleasant to happen, for hard stuff to surface. The pleasant often gives us the strength to open to the unpleasant. Try not to shy away from pleasant experiences. 
it's often pain that teaches us more about opening because it is harder. Our I, me, I, mine doesn't like to hurt. What does pain prepare us for? Emily Dickinson said that Emily Dickinson is a great local writer that lived here um, in New England. She said that pain prepares us for peace. Pain prepares us for peace. When we have physical difficult sensations or emotional or mental difficult feelings, we don't often like to break through that separation because it will hurt and we'll be able to touch the truth and understand uh, and it's such a relief when we can because we're no longer afraid of that part of life. That part of life doesn't have power over us anymore. I was here some years ago not that long ago, but some years ago on a long Vipassana retreat and I had a room in the annex. Sound, as I've said, has been a um, place where it's been a kind of heaven-hell practice and difficult sounds have always been some of my greatest teachers. And in that retreat for two months things weren't so, um, that sounds weren't so difficult for me. And actually what had happened over the years is I had learned a lot of equanimity and freedom with sound. So about two months into the retreat I was sitting there and this incredible machinery pulled up right outside my window and it sounded like there were ten jackhammers, at least ten jackhammers outside my window, just incredibly difficult. And one of the things that was amazing to me is that most of the day I was okay with it. And I didn't even get up to look out my window to see what it was. That's sort of a test if you get up and you look. (laughs) You know you've lost it when you have to see what it is on a conceptual level. And I was sitting there and opening to the sound and there was a lot of aversion but that would come and go and I'd be back with the sound exploring. And about tea time, what was amazing was that my my, uh, neighbor across the hall both of us at the exact same time must have suddenly lost our equanimity. But to have it together was really fun. <laughs> so we didn't plan it, of course, but at five fifty, around 5.10, we both jumped up and slammed open our doors and we looked at each other like, what is that? <laughs> you know, we just, it was like we were frothing out of our mouths. We, you know, we must look so ugly. What is that? And we went pounding down the hall and you know, went into the bathroom, wham, opened the door, opened the window, and looked out. <laughs> and at that moment, she looked at me and she said, really mindful. <laughs> It took us a while to notice that we weren't being very mindful. Uh, (laughs) But we were just furious. We just completely lost it. That doesn't invalidate all those moments of being mindful. You know, and be careful of doing that because you might spend some some sittings where you really open to something difficult, like something physical, like physical pain. 
And you'll think, ah, I know how to work with this now. And then three hours later, it comes back and there's aversion. That doesn't mean that you didn't have equanimity all those times or that you weren't free in those moments all that time. What it means is just in that moment, freedom isn't there in that moment. Equanimity went, mindfulness went, and that's okay. Back off. Wait. Do the best you can to rest the mind because mindfulness isn't possible then. Equanimity isn't possible then. But getting yourself in a deeper rut, (laughs) making it worse, is possible. Not losing energy, getting upset that you've lost it, um, is an art. And a long retreat is, is really the place to learn how not to get yourself in deeper trouble than you already are. (laughs) <laughs> it's learning to be okay in the rut and that it's sort of like a, you know when you get stuck in a car in this deep sand or in the mud and, or the snow and you just you know grinding the wheels and grinding the wheels and making the deeper deeper and deeper and harder to get out you don't have to do that you just lose it it's okay you can label losing it <laughs> A soft mental note. (laughs) Twenty-three years ago, I taught um, a summer camp in Barrie. It amazes me that it's 23 years. Uh, There used to be an Audubon environmental camp in town. And during that summer, uh, we took the children to a, soap, a soapstone quarry. It's a kind of rock that you can carve near here. I didn't leave the field trip, but I kind of remember the bus ride and getting there. But I decided, since um, Stephen Smith isn't here, I, I wanted to carve, some, carve something while he wasn't here as something uh, to do. So I asked our neighbor here to go with me, and she remembers taking her children there 15 years ago. Now that's some years, you know, 23 years, 15 years ago. We're both losing our memory anyway. But we take off without a map, without anything, and we get there. And <laughs> we, we've gone two times now, and I'm calling our trips now the quest for the Holy Grail. I just left her a message in her machine if she wants to go on another trip to the Holy Grail. Uh, And we can't find it. (laughs) And actually, the other day when we went to look for this quarry, we met these two men, and I asked him, have you ever been to the soapstone quarry? And he said, it doesn't exist. And I know it exists. The Holy Grail does exist. Freedom does exist. Uh, And it's kind of fun. Uh, We were walking along, and this was... I'm really attached to getting the soapstone, and she doesn't care at all. And she said, uh, as we went at the end of this last walking trip, she said... I couldn't believe she said this. She said, I hope we never find it. (laughs) And I was like... I want to find the soapstone. I want a car. I'll probably never get to carve this ball. Um, But I realized when she said that, it was such an opening for me. It was like, oh, 
she doesn't care if we find it. She's having fun. She wants to go out here every week with me looking for it. Uh, and that's, that's what the practice is about. You know, you don't ever get there. You know, it's constantly changing. Life is moving. You can never feel like, you know, you can't wear a t-shirt when you leave here and say, I got it. You know, and it's over, finally. <laughs> I don't have to do this anymore. Um, what you learn by doing this practice is that you just keep doing it, and you just keep doing it. That's what happens. Uh, you get more committed to doing it. And this quest for the Holy Grail reminded me of um, Thoreau. And Thoreau, I see, is one of our benefactors and um, a more modern uh, description of mindfulness. Uh, and he writes a lot about the art of walking, and he calls it sauntering. And if you can think of the walking meditation as a kind of sauntering, I'd like to describe how he um, described the derivation of that word, sauntering. He said the first meaning of sauntering is um, that it was from idle people who roved about the countryside in the Middle Ages under the pretense of going to the Holy Land. Now, whenever you go out to do walking meditation, Just think of yourself as an idle person, kind of roaming the countryside under the pretense. You know, you're not here to be enlightened. It's just a pretense. (laughs) A saunterer is a holy lander. The other meaning that he discovered, uh, it's it's the French saunterre, which means without land or without home. And so sauntering also means having no particular home except that you're at home everywhere. And again, I thought this was so beautiful in terms of the practice because every time you take a step with awareness, you're at home in that moment. Every time you take a step with awareness, you're in the Holy Land. You're not going anywhere. You're not trying to get anything. Anytime you're trying to get anything, you're lost. Anytime you think you know something, we're lost. So being equally at home everywhere, he said, Thoreau said, is the secret of successful sauntering. Thoreau said that he actually preferred the first explanation of this word. He said that anytime we walk, anytime we go forth, we're, going, we're walking in the spirit of undying adventure, never to return. He said, whenever you go to walk, and again, if you think of this in terms of whenever you go to do walking meditation, he said, if you are ready to leave father and mother and brother and sister and wife or husband and child and friends and ready never to see them again, if you have paid your debts, if you have made your will and settled all your affairs and you are a free person, only then are you ready for a walk. 
And that's extraordinary. If you are ready to leave father and mother, brother and sister, wife or husband, child and friends, and never to see them again, if you have paid your debts, made your will, settled all your affairs, and are a free person, then you are ready for a walk. That's the spirit of pure exploration. That's possible to do any time you take a step. That's really letting go of the past, so to speak. <laughs> and again, in regard to sauntering, he said, or walking, so we saunter toward the Holy Land till one day the sun shall shine more brightly than it ever has. It'll shine into our minds and hearts and light up our whole lives with a great awakening light, as warm and serene and golden as on a bankside in autumn. The secret of, of sauntering, of successful sauntering, is again being willing to let go of everything, to die to everything. And then in that moment, there's the possibility of the birth of wisdom, the death of the known, the birth of wisdom. With walking, sometimes I think it's possible to relate to walking as if we're in the Holy Land with pure awareness or with breathing, with, with difficult, painful sensations, mental states. With the mental states and emotions, it can tend to be harder. When we're filled with anger, it can be more difficult to think that we're in the Holy Land. Uh, in 1984, I did a three-month retreat here and it was like oh, it was like Pandora's box opened up in terms of difficult emotions, and some really old childhood emotions surfaced for me in that retreat. And once they opened up, they wouldn't shut down again. I think they kind of opened up more than <laughs> I was ready for at the time, but that's how it goes. There's a saying: when it rains, it pours. And I think you could relate to that sometimes in practice, that you know, when it gets difficult, it'll feel like kind of everything goes wrong. And there was such intense, raw emotion coming up for me. And it wasn't just like fear or anger. It was like rage and terror and big things like annihilation. Uh, <clears throat> that was the best one. But you know, the brokenheartedness and all of them were surfacing at once. And it felt to me like if you think of an iceberg or a glacier, it's just like all of it started melting. Uh, and, if you, and that's a lot of um, energy release. And I didn't have as much space as I needed uh, for these emotions when they were coming up. And it, on retreat I was managing, but when I came out of retreat I didn't have enough time or space for them. They became very intense. And it seemed like everyone around me, um, 
they weren't handling them well either. You know, it was like, get it together, Michelle. You know, and so I didn't know what to do. Uh, it was like that was new territory for all of us. So uh, Steve eventually got in touch with someone in Honolulu that he had heard was really good with difficult emotion. And I had learned to really not open to these things. I mean, I was resisting them, to, I was resisting them to, as much as other people were. So I called this person who I didn't know from here, and I described to him what was happening. And really, I was just meeting resistance inside out. It was just like I was kind of ashamed of what was happening. And his response was, Oh, I wish you were here. And I was like, I held the phone on here. It was like, really? This guy's nuts. You know, it's like, okay. And he said, we'd have so much fun. You know, this is such a great journey you're on. And it completely switched my relationship to what was happening. It wasn't like a little switch. It was like to have somebody that not only interested, but just so um, recognizing the importance of it, uh, validating it, opening to it. It was wonderful. And it, I've learned since in knowing him that he just loves difficult places. It's like um, the, most, the more difficult an emotion was, it was like I was giving him gold. And it was like I was giving him a gift. It wasn't, you know, that um, he was faking it. He loved it. And as I started getting better, he started getting depressed. <laughs> he loves that world. You know, that's where he loves to be. And what I learned at that time, most important, and he taught me it, was how to work within my limits. That it was okay not to explore them. That I didn't have to figure it out overnight, that it was going to take time. And I learned to underestimate myself. In some ways I had willed myself in terms of surviving through so many things, and willing myself through these didn't work. It's like I really had to learn how to explore them and not get rid of them. So again, my motivation started to purify because I saw that I didn't have to get rid of them, that I could learn how to experience them. And the proof of whether you feel free with something or not is any time it comes back. You know, if back pain, it goes away for five years and you think you're free of it, but when it comes back and you get upset, that's not freedom, that's aversion. And, and so that, with anything, whether it's a mental state, a mood, a difficult physical sensation, whatever it is, we're not trying to get rid of things. We're trying to understand them. We're learning how to work with them. Remembering that it's okay to rest. It's okay to back off. Because when you back off, you strengthen yourself so that when it comes up again, You'll be interested. You can be interested in terror. You can be interested in loneliness.
there's a poet from Japan from the 12th century named Saigyo, and he has a book called Poems of a Mountain Home. <clears throat> and I like him a lot because he's not afraid of emotion. And from somebody in the 11th century, it's kind of refreshing. And especially loneliness. He talks a lot in his poetry about loneliness. And it's no wonder because he was a forest monk and very few people visited him in the mountains. And this is one of my favorite poems of his. He said, Though in mind you may journey easily into the depths of the mountains, without living here, how can you know their loneliness? And I take this on many levels. Literally, it's true. He lived in the depths of the mountains. And if somebody visited him, there was no way they would know the depths of his loneliness because they would come and they would go. They didn't live there. But it's also much deeper than that. It's really about our spiritual journey. It's about uh, our meditation practice. So I'd like to repeat the poem and see if you can relate it to your own journey in terms of your own practice. Though in mind you may journey easily into the depths of the mountains, but without living here, how can you know their loneliness? When you get into the depths of your practice, you'll, you'll have to experience loneliness. And you'll experience it on deeper and deeper levels. It's like really facing your separateness, facing the aloneness. Um, it's part of the journey. And loneliness is a powerful human experience. The practice isn't getting rid of that loneliness. It's really coming to terms with it. And in one of the things I've read that Saigyo wrote, he said that loneliness had become his friend and that loneliness was better than nothingness that he preferred the experience of loneliness to the experience of nothingness. And I thought that was so, it's so honest, it's so, it's so beautiful. Many times in my practice I've thought of my own body and mind and heart as a, a kind of spaceship. And I, w I really would walk around IMS feeling like I was in a space shuttle. <laughs> Uh, and it's a great way to, to kind of relate to your experience here, that you're on, you know, it's not just the planet, but it's the universe. There's so many worlds to explore. Uh, and you're in a very deep world of your own, exploring. Uh, we're exploring the dimensions of our human experience. And it's possible to explore everything. It's possible to explore anything. Anything that comes up, it's, it's like worthy of our attention.
over the months here, I think you'll get more and more of a sense of the beauty of the journey, that it doesn't matter what it is that you're exploring, um, but that you're on it, and that hopefully it will never end. I'd like to end with a um, little thing by Reps. Reps is a man that died recently that had come into my life, uh, a very joyful being that I felt explored uh, more powerfully than most any teacher I had run into. And his poems always have little calligraphy pictures with them. And this had many grass blades, and the grass blades had little eyes. <laughs> so if you think of a whole page of a picture of grass blades with little eyes on them, and it's called Grass Blade Experiencing. This is the law. No sames. No same leaves. No same pebbles, persons, places, times, faces, or grasses. Whoever, dissipate, whoever disobeys the law gets bored. <laughs> Let's sit for a minute. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.